1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is God's word. Amen. I'm thinking John probably sounded just like that. (laughs) Man, love that. Well, praise God, praise the sun, I guess, for the sun. I mean, the sun just makes things all that much better, I tell you what. So, and church is a little emptier, but that's okay. Praise God. We're in First John chapter two, and we're going to end that chapter today and continue on our verse by verse journey through these letters that are the shortest in the Bible, but some of the most powerful and convicting. Last week we uh, spoke about uh, the different stages of uh, spiritual maturity. And you had your newborn baby believers, you had your middle-aged young believers, and then you have your adult seasoned believers, and tried to talk about how the world attacks each one of those a little bit differently. The uh, new believers are uh, tempted to uh, deny the truth, the foundational truths. The the young or adolescent or middle-aged believers are often tempted to pervert the truth. They have just enough to kind of get messed up. And the old seasoned believers uh, are tempted, I believe, to forget the truth, to forget that there's still much more work to do, to forget the original things that excited them and the things that uh, God has uh, not changed, the truth that are still uh, needed to be preached uh, to themselves and, and to the next generations. All of these uh, temptations and all these attacks are attacks on the truthfulness of God's word. That is what is, uh, is the point of attack, if you will, where Satan is trying to disrupt. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden, uh, where the attack came on causing doubt or distrust, 
uh, about God's word and God's command. And the truth of God, God's word, entered into humanity uh, in the form of Jesus himself. And something that we can never forget, and everyone uh, here and and whoever will get to hear my voice uh, needs to remember is that Satan does not care how you live. Okay? He does not care how you live as long as you reject Jesus. And that's primary. What that means is that he will work to accomplish that goal through whatever means possible, giving you whatever you want. He will work to uh, give you every pleasure, he will deny you every pleasure. He will give you pain or prosperity if that will cause you to reject Jesus. He will tell you lies about God. He will tell you lies about God's word. He will tell you lies about the church. He will lie to you about himself. He will hurt you, as many have been hurt, through uh, those you love. He will sour you to true, good religion. He will tempt you with false religion. He will take those things that God made good and through sin cause you to worship them. He will give or take any number of things away from you so that you will find your meaning and purpose and hope and joy in anything but Jesus. That is the goal. And know that he will never, ever, 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 ever stop until Jesus returns and squashes him completely. That is the lot that we rest in. So in today's text, John's going to speak about uh, what I'm going to describe as the demonic forces that are leading that campaign to destroy your faith, your relationship with God, and to destroy the church. And it's called the Antichrist. And I know that when you say that word, all kinds of of freaky, charismatic, you're a spiritual, like, hyper-spiritual person comes to mind because you don't just throw down Antichrist uh, like uh, in your normal vernacular. But John is, is, you need to know that John isn't just addressing an idea here. In this text here, he is identifying actual people, certain false teachers, and he is labeling them as Antichrists. And these are men who are working for Satan, who are opposed to the truth of Jesus, who are trying to lead Christians away from life, away from obedience, and towards sin and death. Now, John's first and second letters here are the only books in the Bible that use the term Antichrist. We think, we have the idea, the wrong idea, that it's used in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. It's not. It's only used in these two books. But the concept, the idea of a a powerful, lying, charismatic, polarizing individual rising to oppose God in the end of the age is familiar to us, probably is familiar to you, Uh, and it was very much understood at the time John was writing. It had been understood since it had been hinted at or identified in the book of Daniel. We later find out, whenever I preach the book of Daniel, you'll hear a lot of history about a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes and, and all that was going together there. It's a pretty amazing study. But that idea of a man, of an individual, was further developed by Paul, 
I believe it's in 2 Thessalonians, where he wrote about a, a man of lawlessness, about this individual that would rise before Jesus returns. And John himself spoke about the same thing or a similar thing in the book of Revelation. Now, in his letters, John isn't arguing that there will be uh, a person, a man, an actual individual that may rise in the end that has that kind of power and charisma and, and polarizing ability. But instead, at this point, he is emphasizing a group of people, the, these guys that the attitude and actions of a lot of different antichrists, as he's going to call them, that have risen, are rising, and are most likely in the present, are present in the church that he's writing to, and quite frankly, present today. Now, the Antichrist, that term anti, does mean in opposition to Christ. But it also means um, a replacement of Christ. Jesus himself talked about, uh, in Matthew 24, different Christs, or men that would rise up and claim to be especially anointed by God as, uh, you know, a, as Jesus himself, so to speak, uh, but literally as well, with a special role or special job or special mission to do redemptive work like Jesus did. And there have been, and there are today, various uh, nut jobs and wing nuts who have stood up and said, I'm Jesus. Watched an interesting uh, History Channel or Discovery uh, show on this the other day where there are guys right now claiming to be Jesus, and it's hilarious because, um, first of all, they're total fruitcakes, but secondly, um, even the little kids know that they're just full of you-know-what. He's one guy, uh, he's a Brit- British man, he was like he had some great job, and he decided that he was Jesus, and he left, and now he goes and walks around Israel and cries a lot. And he was walking, and the filmmakers are like following him because he's claiming to be Jesus and all these things. And um, the kids see this guy getting followed by cameras, and they're you know, impressed. And like, who is that? And he goes, oh, I'm Jesus. And she goes, no, you're not. <laughs> A little like five-year-old girl, you know. Pretty obvious. The guy doesn't have any followers. He's got a couple hobos he's hanging out with like in this cemetery because that's the only place that you know, no one bothers them. There have been guys like that. There are guys like that that do claim to actually be Jesus. But here John is speaking about all of the preachers and the teachers and the spiritual gurus who may not identify themselves as Jesus, but they position themselves and their teaching and their church as the object to be worshipped. They pretty much replace Jesus at the center of the community. Now, John knows... And I agree that the more dangerous antichrists are not those who actually say, I'm Jesus. Because even a little kid can go, fruitcake. The more dangerous ones are the ones that, quite frankly, replace him very subtly as Savior and Lord. And that happens today. That's happened in this very community. That's happening across the nation right now. Cults begin when... A group of people get polarized around one person. And that one person's teaching, that one person's persona, the actual individual, gets revered. They are the example to follow. The words that are more quoted than Scripture. The one to be obeyed no matter what. The one that is set against the Word of God if there is a conflict. 
The one who positions himself as Christ himself, the Word of God. And I, um, again, have tried to go, okay, that really happened today? Is that really happening? And I, I'm seeing it very subtly in the evangelical church. Um, and I think that, and I, I'm almost scared to death about this, quite frankly. Because with, um, with the internet today and, and what's available, I think pastors and teachers, um, even writers, have to be very careful that as they work for uh, the fame of Jesus, they um, don't become more devoted to their own, even accidentally or unintentionally. Now, what we see with John here is uh, like a father with years of, quite frankly, joyful, faithful suffering, years of persecution. This is a guy that got boiled in oil and survived. Um, years of watching false teachers come and go. He is teaching this next generation how to deal with the Antichrist that are there and the ones that are going to be coming. And he begins by reminding them that Antichrist shouldn't surprise them. Their existence, as these guys pop up, they are to be expected. Um, the faith of this church, not our church, but the church he's writing to, has been just shaken at the core. And the things that have been challenged are, as we saw in the beginning of the letter, the historicity of Jesus. Was Jesus really alive? Did he really come? Um, people are leaving the church. They're very confused as to exactly what the truth is because some people that they really trusted and thought were Christians have left and now they've started their own church. And John reminds them that these teachers and these antichrists that are doing this, that are teaching false doctrine, that are pulling people away from the church, um, that is, it is characteristic of what he describes as the last hour. He uses that phrase, last hour. It's not used anywhere else. John likes to use stuff... It's pretty unique to his letters. Um, He uses the last hour. The apostles, if you read in the New Testament, typically talk about the last days quite often. Taking John literally, you go, okay, it's the last hour, John. It's been 2,000 years since that last 60 minutes. And either you were wrong or you meant something else. So the last hours, we have to understand, the last days, I think, talk about the same thing, describe um, generally the the, uh, coming to the end of a certain age and the beginning of another age or another time period. In this case, I believe that it's the time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That whole time period can be described as the last hour or the last days. It It is the completion of, John had written earlier, of the passing away of a a dying and fallen world and its desires. And it culminates with the return of Jesus and the final restoration of all things um, completely. And as we are tempted to deny the truth, we are. As we are tempted to deny the truth through all the things that we suffer in the midst of this last days, all the trials that come, we would do very well to remember and to keep on the forefront of our mind this idea that every hour is the last hour. This is how the apostles lived. This is how John clearly is living, this sense of urgency, remembering a couple things. Number one, that this world is temporary. It is dying. It is passing away. That it will, at any moment, come to an end. 
it reminds us very clearly where our hope lies. And it's not here. It's very tempting to, to get drawn away by the world because we believe or begin to believe the lie that the world is all there is. So we better get my own and get mine before things pass. But there's much more. It also gives us knowing there's an end. It's like anything. Knowing there's going to be an end to it in the midst of a trial. Time to endure. I can endure knowing this is going to come to an end. It also gives us reason to rejoice. Because when Jesus returns, that is going to be awesome. I mean, we should not stop praying for Jesus' return. The book of Revelation ends with John saying repeatedly, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've been thinking, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, a lot. Okay? Like last night when I'm rocking my son at 4 a.m. and he's crying, I'm like, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right now. But as we suffer, whatever it looks like, we can never forget that this is going to end. This is not all there is. Jesus is returning. And it should give us a sense of urgency, not just for our own life, but also for loving others with the truth. That it's going to come to an end. That it's the last hour. And John says that the last days of this last hour is going to be marked by, that's why he's saying don't be surprised, attacks on Jesus and attacks on the church by various antichrists. John spoke this way, Paul spoke this way, Peter spoke this way, and we are very reluctant to speak this way. I don't know when the last time Antichrist fell from your lips. Okay, It's not very common for us. It seems as if we like to live pretending like there is no spiritual war going on. Very ignorant of the warfare that is raging around us. And we have become, quite frankly, and I include myself in this, very tolerant and very blind to the different antichrists around us. John is saying, they're there, all over the place. And as we fulfill God's command to love our neighbors, which is commanded, to love our enemies, which is commanded, let us not forget that the last days, what we live in, are characterized not by good people who just believe different things. It is characterized by often so-called Christians devoting themselves to the doctrine of demons. Well, that sounds kind of hyper-spiritual charismatic, Sam. Let me just read what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to a young pastor named Timothy. We went through this study uh, some time ago. It says in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says, so this isn't like he kind of hinted at, he expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to other good truths that are very good moralistic. No, to deceitful spirits... And teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The teachings of demons. I know that sounds crazy hyper spiritual. For those of you who have never, uh, not a single charismatic bone in your body, you're like, 
you know, what is the spirit? What is a demon? I don't even know what those things are. Okay? I grew up in a uh, very fundamentalist kind of covenant church where you didn't even mention the Holy Spirit or demons or anything. I went to school at an Assemblies of God school where I didn't know what Pentecostal was, where a demon was under every single rock and to blame for everything, even bad driving. So I have the spectrum. I understand that. Okay? But we, we can't, as C.S. Lewis talked about, we can't ignore it, but we can't be enamored with it. False teaching is the result of demonic teaching, and false teachers are proposing or, proposing or promoting demonic doctrines. Now, Paul says that the age, in this last verse I just read, is marked by people leaving the faith. And I could throw all kinds of statistics that are not difficult to find about the percentage of people leaving the evangelical church and leaving church and leaving religion altogether and yet still claiming spirituality. It's rampant. There are people in the church now writing books about how the church is dying because of all the people that are leaving. This is what happens in churches or is what's happening in the churches that John is writing to. So it's like, hasn't stopped. People are leaving the churches and apparently these false teaching antichrists were in the church at one point, and now they've left. So the church, as they see people leaving, are confused whether these people are Christians or not. Because they've spent time in them, with community with them. Now, John tells them, no. These people are heretics because they haven't repented, they haven't returned, they are not Christians, and they never were. He's very plain about it. And we have to be careful, because I know many of you have left churches. So let's not just start labeling people who leave churches. Understand in this context, these are not good people leaving ungodly churches. Because there are ungodly churches. There are churches that are um, basically not centered on gospel truth and people should flee and run from them. These are ungodly people, unsaved people, non-believing people leaving godly, gospel-centered churches. That's what's happening here. Now, more than that, though, as these people leave their church, John's church is overseen, they are now claiming that there's a special knowledge, a new insight, some special spiritual uh, knowledge that they have received some unique insight into the truth. They are preaching and marketing something that looks very good, that sounds very good, that seems and feels like the truth. And though their knowledge, knowledge, is completely unbiblical, it is apparently attractive enough to gather a crowd and to draw others away from the truth. What's that mean? Well, that means that every organization that's spiritual, every church that's out there, just because they're able to draw people, may mean they are preaching the truth, and it may not mean they're preaching the truth. We must be careful. Um, there are lots of ways to build things and grow things. And John assures these people, because they have this new truth, as they begin to see, like, man, maybe they got something over there. They're drawing a crowd. I mean, they got, they're excited about it. They're passionate about things. I mean, God, they know what they believe. John says, look, you don't need new truth. There's nothing new that you need in verses 20 and 25 there. He's like, you don't need new truth you need to be reminded of the truth you already know. 
And the truth that they already know is the gospel. And John doesn't tell them to study every nuance of this new counterfeit faith. He doesn't tell them to confront every lie. He says, devote yourselves to the true faith you learned from the scripture that was given to the church that was taught by the Holy Spirit. The Christian faith doesn't need new invention and and redesign and a new experience. What it needs, quite frankly, is devotion to an old faith. We did a sermon series on James, I believe it was James, and we called it Retro Faith. Because there's all kinds you can see all the time, new, kind, like, new ways to market the church, new faith, new this, new this. And it's like, dude, let's do something old. Let's go back to the simplicity of faith, devotion to the basics of faith. The light of Scripture is what protects us when a liar comes out of the darkness with attractive, new teaching that actually either adds or subtracts from the Bible. Sometimes attempts to replace it. And quite frankly, I think all too often we are very um, willing to dismiss the teachings of various antichrists because of all the good things that they do. I don't know if you've ever met um, a mean Mormon. Okay? I was a high school teacher for 10 years, and the Mormons were the best students. I'll tell you what, a lot of the Christians were the worst students. That's just generally speaking, but man, they were bad. Okay? But the Mormon kids, man, they were in line, academic, nice kids, faithful. I don't know how many times they preached to me about Joseph Smith, constantly. Okay? You'd usually last one conversation and they never talk to me again about him. But they do great things. And we're very quick to start going, you know, they do such good things, maybe. And we'd be uh, very wise to consider what was written way back in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, there's an interesting passage that we should be careful to pay attention to. This is Moses warning Israel, and I think it's appropriate for us as well in the first couple of verses. In Deuteronomy 13 it says, If a prophet or a dreamer or a pastor or a teacher or a blogger or a writer, that's my version, arise among you and give you a sign or a wonder. So do something amazing. Maybe miraculous, but maybe just wonderful. And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Wait a second. So Old Testament here is like, make some predictions and prophecy and it comes to pass. That would happen for a false prophet. That's what it says. And if he says, so he does some wonder and then he starts speaking. Red flag. What's he saying? If he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, new gods, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Him, 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 Him. Right? There will be people who are antichrists who do great things, amazing things. 
We are not to evaluate what they do. We are to evaluate what they teach. Because they will do fantastic things, convincing signs, as they lead you to worship false gods. As they lead you away specifically from Jesus. And I know while we, we sit here and we go, well, Joe Christian is, is not going to renounce his faith and become a Muslim. That's not going to happen. I will say that it is certain that many, 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 as Paul said, as John says here, will depart from their faith, renouncing Jesus as the only way to salvation. Consider this. There was a uh, well-known talk show host, after 25 years, just called it quits. And many years ago, had an interesting conversation with a Christian. Now, this said, said talk show host was uh, raised in a, uh, I believe, a Baptist, well, it might have been Pentecostal church, um, and claimed to, uh, at one point, love Jesus. Had an interesting exchange uh, with an audience member that went something like this. Speaking about journeys to God or salvation, she said, this talk show host, there couldn't possibly be just one way. To which the audience member responded, well, what about Jesus? God loved that woman for asking that question. To which the said talk show host spoke, what about Jesus? Does God care about your heart? Or does God care about if you call his son Jesus? Wow. Now, I'm not calling Oprah the Antichrist, okay? Don't be sending me some email. I love Oprah. I love her book. <laughs> You tell me she's a demon. <clears throat> but I'll tell you real, real f- frankly, is out of, uh, I think out of fear of, be calling a, of being called a religious nut or, or some right-wing wacko, we don't use labels for anyone anymore, even if they're biblical labels. But just for a second, apart from all the, all the dark, macabre connotations that you get with uh, Antichrist, connecting with Antichrist, Consider how we are to characterize someone, anyone of influence, any individual or any organization who denies Jesus before millions of people and proclaims that he is not the only means to salvation. Is that person just confused? Is that person just mistaken or lost? What are you going to do with that? Here, in chapter 2, and then later John will say in chapter 4, and in his second letter in verse 7, John says that anyone who denies the true identity of Jesus as God in human flesh and proclaims him basically denying that he has come to save mankind is an antichrist. 
And if that's true, if that's the simple label, then there are a lot more antichrists than we could probably have ever imagined, especially, as I said, in today's wired world, where their voices can reach more people than any other time in history. That's scary. Is Jesus the only means of salvation or not? Now, the false sermons of Antichrist are pretty simple. They lie about three things. So if you want to know, like, okay, red flag. Number one, they lie about Jesus. What's that mean? How people relate to God. How they connect with God. How they commune with God. They lie about Jesus. Because the Bible says he is the only means of salvation. The second thing they lie about is the church. What's that mean? How people relate to one another. God's intention for mankind is to bring them into a family, into a community, to love one another, serve one another. That's why Jesus died, for the church. So they lie about the church. And the third thing they lie about is the spirit of Jesus. So they lie about Jesus, the bride of Jesus, and the spirit of Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus basically is, how do people make decisions? How do we make decisions? Is it just, you know, whatever we feels good to ourselves? Is it whatever is most helpful to someone else? Or is it according to the spirit of Jesus? So, Antichrists, then, are people who talk about God, even claim spirituality, even profess to know what's in the Bible, but at the same time reject Jesus as God. Very simple. They readily, readily accept the humanity of Jesus and say, you know what, this, he was real, but they vehemently reject his deity, his authority, his salvation. Know this. Confessing Christ as a real human does not save you. Confessing Christ as a good, moral, fantastic, amazing teacher does not save you. Confessing Christ dying on the cross as a fantastic example of humility and service does not save you. Confessing Christ as Savior and Lord as a sinner's substitute on the cross for their sins, as a crucified king, is what saves you. Make no mistake about it, because there's a lot of Christ available. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says there is another Christ, another spirit, another gospel, and I would say there are many. And John says quite plainly, if you deny Jesus, you deny God. You can't have God the Father and Jesus not as the Son of God. You can't have Jesus as kind of a great little teacher, good human, nice example. Oh yeah, and I believe in God too. Can't have it. They go together. And not surprisingly, that's exactly what Jesus taught. When he was talking to Philip, Philip's like, man, show us God the Father. Show us what God's like. He's like, dude, P, I've been with you for how long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Well, what does that mean? It means you can't have one without the other. So when people start talking about God and being spiritual, the only question I want to know is, what do you think about Jesus? That's what's most important. Because that will dictate everything else. 
And that is why Jesus was always asking, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Because lots of people say I'm lots of things. So John, in verse 24 to 27 here, after warning his children like a good dad, a good father, he imparts them with some wisdom of how they're being protected from the Antichrist. What do we do? And his wisdom is less about what they're actually to do and more about what they're to know and believe. And he says in verse 24, you'll see he uses the word abide five times in these four verses. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to about those who are trying to deceive you. The word abide has this connotation of remaining in, of living in, of walking in, of being guided and governed by something or someone. And he tells the church to let what you've heard abide in them. And the question is begged, obviously, well, what did they hear? And the answer is the gospel. And the gospel is not just facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That certainly is the foundational uh, piece. But it is something that goes beyond knowledge. It is The gospel is the power by which we are saved, but it's also the power by which we live, the power through which we grow. The problem, as in misunderstanding of the gospel, and the power to overcome any problem. Any issue that we have, I guarantee you, is a result of disbelief in the gospel. Contentment comes, I believe, from being right with our Creator, and that comes from the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the gospel. Contentment. Not prosperity, not all these things you want. What you truly want is contentment, and you're trying to find an idol to to match that. And at the moment someone is saved by Jesus, the moment they, they accept that I have been forgiven I'm a guilty sinner, and Jesus has has absorbed the wrath that's reserved for me. Once you believe that, that moment you become a son of God. And when you become a son of God, the Spirit of God, also called the Spirit of Jesus, also called the Holy Spirit, is sent into your hearts. And Galatians says that from within your hearts, God cries out basically to himself, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself says that. Daddy. You're a son, a child of God in that moment. You don't become a child over a long period of time. You are in that moment. Your identity has changed. And unlike the false teachers who are, quite frankly, just guided by their flesh, if you are a Christian, you are guided by the Holy Spirit that dwells in your heart. He abides in you to help you abide in God. Catch that? He abides in you to help you abide in God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, writes it this way, verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And God, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Not only of eternal life, but of life right now. John calls this indwelling the anointing. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. And it's an anointing that was received once, not to be received again. 
He says, verse 27, The anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing, God's anointing, teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in Him. So, Maybe you're familiar with anointing, maybe not. In the Old Testament, they had a process of anointing. And that would be where, through the laying on of hands, often through the use of oil, they would set apart people or things for God. And they would be considered holy, set apart, employed for some special role or some function for God. Prophets were anointed by God. Priests were anointed by God. Kings were anointed by God. One time. Now, the term anointing, depending on your experience with with church and with Christians, has been woefully abused in the church. These false teachers are probably, maybe you've heard this before, claiming a special anointing. We've been especially anointed with new knowledge And a lot of people do that today. And you wonder, why would anyone do that? Well, I think and believe that the phrase is commonly used by non-believing goats who don't want to submit to the Bible and non-believing wolves who want others to submit to them. That's why that anointing card is thrown down often. You have... Oftentimes, as well, prideful Christians, along with the false teachers, who use anointing to look down on others, down on other churches, dismiss their preaching, their worship, their people, whatever, well, they just don't have the anointing. Or to have others look up to them. Maybe you've heard that before. It's common, and commonly abused, and commonly misunderstood. The term as John uses it here, is intended to be a description of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in every believer. That's the anointing. It is the power of God in us, not our intellect, not our gut. The power of God in us that protects us from the lies of the world. And that power is bestowed by the will of God, not the will of man, to whom he chooses to save. And anyone who chooses to save has that power within us, within you. It is an empowerment that happens one time, an empowerment that brings new life, an empowerment that is intended to equip you for the gospel, and it should fill you with joy and confidence to know that God of the universe lives and dwells within your heart and is there to protect you and there to guide you. The primary role, as Jesus taught, of the Holy Spirit is to teach us and to help us believe and accept what Jesus taught. He told his disciples, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will teach you and remind you of everything I taught. And the most important truth that the Holy Spirit teaches us is the true identity of Jesus as God and Messiah. The true anointed one is the translation. So, here's the problem. We can never forget that the Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit leads us. 
But false teachers will use that truth to their advantage to abuse and to control. Here's what the Holy Spirit does and never does. The Holy Spirit does not intend to provide new revelation. Catch that? The Holy Spirit does not intend to provide new revelation. The Holy Spirit brings understanding and acceptance to the revelation that already exists. The Word of God. So when someone says, I've got a new revelation, I've got new this, new that. Red flag. Now if that new revelation lines up with the Word of God, First of all, it ain't new. Secondly, I'm okay. I've talked to people, say, oh, I saw angels, Jesus talked to me, blah, blah, blah. Fantastic. What do they say? What did they say? I don't care how much glow there was. I don't care what, you know, stars were shooting across the sky. What did they say? They told me not to worship Jesus. That wasn't the Holy Spirit. Okay? It told me I should probably lie about this. That's not the Holy Spirit. They told me that I should probably sleep with this person because I truly love them and that's what counts. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaks, the Spirit guides, but the Spirit does not contradict or provide brand new revelation. It gives understanding of the revelation that already exists and pulls us towards God. John reminds the church that they don't need a teacher, which he even means a God-appointed one like himself. You don't need me. You don't need your elders and pastors. I know it's like dangerous to say, right? But it's very good to say. And I say that because your ultimate source of instruction is the Holy Spirit. And every Christian is a spirit-filled, anointed priest possessing the capacity to know God in his ways. Now, I do believe that that Holy Spirit will lead you to love the church, to love your pastors, to listen to the teaching, because that's what the Holy Spirit and the Word of God says. But, through the Spirit, not through Sam, not through Chris or Mark or Jim or Randy, through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God becomes authoritative, the Word of God becomes clear, the Word of God becomes sufficient and necessary to your life. The Holy Spirit does that. Does the Holy Spirit speak through men? Without doubt. But don't think that, man, that guy really said it perfectly. If it was something that convicted you, something that gave you understanding, something that is the Holy Spirit, not some man. So through the Spirit, you have the capacity to know truth and know error. So, though it's a condemnation on all false teachers that don't have the Holy Spirit, I want to make sure that I'm not condemning godly teachers and scholars whom we all love, but it is a challenge for you. If you are a Christian, to read your Bible more, to pray to the Holy Spirit for understanding more, 
to meditate on the Word of God more, to commune with God the Holy Spirit more. If you are going, man, I just don't get it. I don't understand Christianity. Yes, study. But understand that the study has got to be prayerful and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He closes in the last two verses here, reminding us of Jesus' return. He says, And now, little children, abide in him again, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame of his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John ends with saying, Jesus is coming back. I looked at a couple quotes about what people say about Jesus, including our friend Oprah. Bob Hope said a great quote. Um, I don't know how truthful it is necessarily. I guess in some sense it is. But he said, there's good news and bad news. The good news is Jesus is returning. The bad news is he's really pissed off. (laughs) I think that uh, there's something to be said to be looking forward to Christ returning with confidence and not shame. And you think about whether you really want Jesus to come back. I'm not doing like Catholic style where you got your moral sins and, oh, I just sinned and if I didn't ask for forgiveness and I'm out of the, uh, you know, I'm kicked out of heaven club. I'm not talking about that. But I do, uh, I do think we need to consider whether we would be ashamed if Jesus were to return with the state of our lives right now and the state of our hearts right now. Jesus is returning, and John tells us to abide in him until he does. And Well, it wasn't May 21st, we found out. And I kind of doubt that it's October 21st or whatever other date he gave. But, you know, you never know. Even, you know, even fools can guess, uh, perhaps, the right date. But neither uh, you or I want to shrink at his coming. As if our hand was caught in the sinner's cookie jar. Basically, John tells us that uh, if we know Jesus, we'll live like Jesus, which doesn't necessarily bring us a lot of confidence, more despair. So what does that mean exactly? We know he's righteous, so if you know him, you'll practice righteousness. Does that mean we just need to get better until he comes, try harder, clean up our act, pray more, get more involved in church, read the Bible longer? Here's what I believe it means, and I believe this is an endeavor of walking in the Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, you follow John's progression of how he's gone in his letter. It begins with understanding the gospel that you're a sinner, and then it proceeds into confessing that sin because you're going to screw up. You're going to screw up many times on the way for Jesus returning. Christians are not perfect. Far from it. They admit their imperfections. But I believe that it means that as we are guided by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and depend upon the Spirit, we are to work, but catch this, we are to work to rest in Christ's work. That's our work. Our hard work means coming to a deeper understanding of His work on our behalf, of dwelling on what Jesus has done for us. That is transformational. Martin Luther wrote, to progress is always to begin again. If you want to go forward, you always have to begin and go back to constantly the cross. And moving forward in Christ requires 
a daily return to the cross of confessing your sin, of resting in the forgiveness you have in Him, and the spirit you have to do more to glorify Him. Our protection until Christ come and our confidence when He does, doesn't originate with our work on how good we did in the time we have left. It means holding fast to the gospel of Jesus in fellowship with the bride of Jesus, guided and led by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. That is what our goal is. And we take communion every Sunday. A, because Jesus commanded us to, but B, as a participation in the gospel. So as you come forward, first of all, this is for believers. This is not, if you are not a believer, uh, this is not for you. If you are a believer, this is for you. You come up as a family, we do this together, and you participate actively in the death of Jesus on your behalf. And as you confess that, what you are declaring is a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You are admitting your guilt, you are admitting your failures, you are receiving forgiveness as you already have received it, and you are accepting the anointing. But know that the anointing of the Spirit that you already have is not just intended to save you and give you your fire insurance card. The anointing in the Old Testament and the New was always, always intended to save and then to send. It was to actively do something. To love God actively. To love others actively. So if you confess that I have the Holy Spirit by actively doing this, then you have the capacity to not only to obey, but A, to love God through obedience and to love others. You possess that. Rest in that. Rest in that. Rest in that. It doesn't have to come from your own mind, heart. It comes from Jesus in you. Let's pray.